The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. I am Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams, and today I'm happy to have here again, as a guest on The Legacy of John Williams podcast, soundtrack record producer Mike Matasino. Hi, Mike. Thank you for being here with us again. Hi, Maurizio, and it's uh, great to be back talking with you guys again. And joining me as a co-host is head contributor of The Legacy of John Williams, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Nice to see you again. Hey, guys. Yeah, good to see you both. Very happy to talk with you too again, Tim. As we already announced on our social media pages, we are here for what is now a little tradition <laughs> of the legacy of John Williams, our end-of-the-year talk with Mike Metasino about his latest work of future-proofing the music of John Williams. And today the focus is on the release, recently announced by Lonelyland Records, of Fiddler on the Roof, 50th Anniversary Remastered Edition. It's the soundtrack of the beloved 1971 film adaptation directed by Norman Jewison of the beloved Tony Award-winning musical by Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick, whose score was adapted, arranged and conducted by John Williams for the film version and for which he also won his first Oscar. It's a massive three-CD set featuring the most comprehensive and accurate presentation of this work ever assembled. It presents the original soundtrack recording properly restored and remastered on disc 1, plus two more discs of alternate and film versions, playback tracks, and also some of the original score cues composed by John Williams as transitional material between songs. And it features a 50-page booklet, even though it's reductive to call it just a booklet, uh, featuring a lengthy essay written by Mike Matasino about the original musical, the film adaptation, and the music and the work by John Williams, all nicely packaged with beautiful art design by Jim Titus. So it's truly an astonishing release and, dare I say, definitive uh, presentation of a major piece in the career of John Williams. Before starting the conversation with Mike, let's hear a preview track from this new release. This is Dan Track Q, composed by John Williams for the actual intermission that was usually the norm for roadshow presentation of movies projected in 70mm six-track audio in big theaters. So it's a tradition that now is sadly no more. But speaking of this piece, it's a delightful arrangement presenting some of the main thematic material of the songs heard in the first act, orchestrated with great symphonic flair by John Williams. In this little piece, we can hear one of the reasons why he got his first Oscar, but it's also a sample of the great restoration work done by Mike Matasino, which truly shines a new light 
on this similar score. So without further ado, let's hear Untracked from Fiddler on the Roof. So this was the Untracked from Fiddler on the Roof, uh, music adapted and conducted by John Williams. So it's a superb piece of music and certainly a testament of John Williams' brilliance as orchestrator and also a great sample of the marvelous playing by the London Orchestra which recorded the soundtrack. So Mike, before doing our deep dive about this release, uh, I'd love to talk with you about your own personal connection to Fiddler on the Roof. Because from what I know, uh, the film and the original musical are something you feel very close to and are very personal for you. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And thank you for asking me about that. And um, I will try to talk about it because I do credit Fiddler on the Roof with single-handedly sparking my entire interest in film and film music and theater and basically the related arts. And it pretty much all started in childhood where we lived in a garden apartment at the time and in an area across from where our apartment was was where my mother's best friend lived. They were both telephone operators and my mother's best friend was Jewish. And I was very close with her son, who was a few years younger than I, but that was a sort of a very important introduction to Jewish culture to me because I very much embraced it. It also turned out that in the apartment immediately next door to this neighbor was a man who um, was going to play Tavia in a church company production of Fiddler on the Roof, which is which I went to see and was pretty much my first time seeing a fully staged musical, even though it was a small-scale, local, you know, community production, basically. But I was very much taken with the music and with the whole 
process, and I still to this day have the uh, rehearsal score that this gentleman gave me um, when he was done. It's uh, very much shredded, and um, and I would take it and play it at the piano, but I really loved the music, and Into the House then came um, a sort of a bargain bin re-recording of the songs, and I listened to those, and this was just sort of an explosion of this whole interest in music, and at the same time already having some familiarity by being very close with the Jewish family, um, with the culture. So um, there were these two things coming together. Right around the same time, also, my mother's sister married a Jewish man, who was my uncle, and he came, of course, with his whole family, you know, merged with ours. Now, in New York, there's very, very little difference between Italian families getting together and Jewish families getting together, with the exception of the types of food that you have. There's the same amount of cooking and the same amount of eating the same amount of uh, chit-chat and arguments and card games and, you know, and fun and laughs and all that. The cultures very much are blended in, in New York, right even down to Manhattan itself, where you have the Lower East Side and you have Little Italy, and everybody eats each other's food and goes to each other's bakeries and restaurants. So there was this sort of blending of cultures, and at such a young age, it just, I, it, I didn't have any sort of sense of division. I just embraced especially this sort of um, promotion of community that uh, Fiddler on the Roof seemed to kind of exude. I just sort of, that ended up kind of translating into real life. So of course, by this time the movie was playing and it was still in its long roadshow engagements. So because of my great interest, my mother had the idea, let's take, take me down to Manhattan to see it. I'm pretty sure that up to that point, all I had really seen is what you would call kitty fair, you know, Disney cartoon movies and such, at local theaters, which were all kind of, um, you know, fading old movie palaces. There was nothing technically great about the experience then, but as a young person, you don't have any awareness of that. So uh, into Manhattan, I go to the Rivoli Theater on uh, 49th Street, in 7th Avenue, where it had been playing for quite a while as an exclusive, 70mm 6-track, and I'm pretty sure that this would have been the first time I actually heard stereo recorded sound in a big space like that. I already knew the story, I already knew the songs, but now I was seeing the story unfold on this massive screen and hearing the music and the sound in general in a way that absolutely woke something up. And I don't know really how to, uh, you know, really articulate it. But the opening shot of the film, where you see the sunrise, in my mind, it was like a, a dawn of something inside me. And it starts with this quiet. The sun rises. You know, you start hearing the crickets and a distant rooster, rooster and birds and whatever. In the morning, everything's waking up. And then that solo violin comes in. And then you have the prologue, and it explodes into this orchestra and chorus surrounding me, literally, in a way I'd never experienced. It just was, um, you know, like the origin moment for me. When I heard this, I just was astounded by this process and this sound and this orchestra that I was hearing accompanying the story I was seeing that I was already familiar with. 
but it just moved it to such a different level, to the point that even later on when I saw the Broadway revival, my parents were scratching their heads over why I kept saying I liked the movie better. Because it's like, oh, this is live theater, and this is where it started, and this is, you know. But I said, no, there was something about the cinematography, the editing, the timing of um, the delivery of the dialogue, the scenery. But, you know, either behind it all or maybe in front of it all was what John Williams did for it. And there was just part of it, even though he didn't compose the underlying melodies of the songs, there was something he did to it that it was a unique sound which was no different to my ear from what we all came to recognize later when he did Jaws and Star Wars and, and all that. I don't really hear any difference. He already had um, arrived, as it were, and I was hearing um, that familiar sound was, you know, a lot of people use the cliche, John Williams scored my childhood, that kind of thing. Um, I was already hearing it back before the world at large really knew who he was. It's sort of always been with me, and um, by the time Jaws came along, it was a recognizable name to me, a recognizable sound to me, having already been familiar from the disaster scores and, and things like that and seeing his name. It ended up being one of the first movies he did that was one of the top hits of the year, and of course he got an Oscar nomination and, and won his first Oscar for it. So um, it's important to him, and it's equally important to me because uh, I don't think there would have been anything else if it hadn't been for that movie and the interest that it sparked for me. to hear about your personal connection to this film, Mike, and I think all the soundtrack fans should be grateful to this film for igniting such a creative spark in you. And speaking of creativity, uh, one of the things that truly fascinates me about this work in the context of John Williams' musical life is to understand how crucial it was for the build-up of his career as a top-tier composer in the industry. Uh, this project happened in a very specific moment of his life uh, as he was still hot on the heels of two other major pieces of adaptation, uh, The Valley of the Dolls and Goodbye Mr. Chips, uh, for both of which he got his first Academy Award nominations. So he, won he was kind top of the line in that regard. Uh, but at the same time, he was also starting to be a very prominent and one of the most interesting original voices in... Uh, among Hollywood composers, and he wrote some great scores for movies like The Rivers and also Jane Eyre, which was done really just before Fiddler on the Roof. And he was also starting to explore very seriously concert music, uh, writing his first major works for the concert hall. So here comes Fiddler on the Roof, a piece 
where, as we just heard, he was able to put a very personal stamp despite working on an existence score. So do you think this work was sort of a culmination of things he did up until that moment? I think it was a sort of natural progression, as you indicated, but but perhaps the main part of it is the specific of the work done in London, hmm. which did start uh, with Goodbye Mr. Chips. And I think after that, he really just actively wanted to continue working there. That was, of course, Goodbye Mr. Chips itself was an offshoot of his time at Fox in the 60s and meeting Leslie Brickus and working with Andre Previn on Valley of the Dolls. Andre Previn having initiated Goodbye Mr. Chips as a musical with songs that he and his wife wrote, which were ultimately torn out. And then he recommended to producer Arthur Jacobs that Leslie would be the person to write new songs and John would be the person to do the adaptation. So, so many things were going on at the time in that period, which we've often talked about, the mid-60s, when this amazing group of talent kind of were gathered by Lionel Newman to create what we think of as the sort of the modern age of film scoring, because all those names associated there at the time were everybody that we came to know. Yeah, everybody was there at the time, Jerry Goldsmith and Henry Mancini, um, Mm. Alex North, and then all the music editors and all the arrangers. Yeah, there was certainly a, um, it, it was almost like a training ground, right, for, for, for big projects. So, But I think mm-hmm. that Goodbye Mr. Chips being an English story was naturally going to be done in England. John's experience through that um, year and a half, basically, including the last six months from January to June of 1969, he was there alone doing the final arrangements and everything. And... We've often talked about that, and I've written about it. That uh, some he you know he forged something, some kind of um, aware, some something to do with the European tradition of music, kind of came into his music in a way that it wasn't that um, that kind of um, blended with the jazzy type of things he was doing in the U.S. in the '60s. Now there was sort of an old world kind of influence coming into it, which was perfect for. For Chips, obviously, it's a timeless story. But you started to hear in that score some very familiar things that would then not go away. So that when he came back to California in the summer of 69 and had planned to take a time off from film scoring, in came the request for Mark Rydell to write the replacement score for the Reavers. Lalo Schifrin had recorded a score, and that was rejected. And very, very quickly... Uh, John wrote the Reavers, and this, it, it's wholly Americana, it's very, very much Aaron Copeland inspired, but out came this sound that we immediately recognize as sort of the arrival of the John Williams that we later would yeah. be very familiar with. But I think he really, despite the long haul of working on Goodbye Mr. Chips, I think he really loved working in England and really wanted to go back. And you know, we found out through correspondence on the project that it was actually, and from Walter Mirisch's book, this was then this was confirmed, that um, he got a call from John's agent saying, John is interested in Fiddler. They hadn't thought he would be. They'd worked, the Mirisch company had worked with him already because uh, Fitzwilly was a Mirisch production. And so they knew him and Walter Mirisch had known him 
since doing um, the apartment and some like it hot. But uh, when they found out that uh, he was interested, they said, okay, great. And so it would be another year and a half in London, <laughs> in the midst of which would be uh, Jane Eyre, and then shortly yes. followed by Images. But I also pointed out um, in my research to find out how long Fiddler on the Roof played at that exclusive in New York, it was 13 months before it spread to other theaters. And on, when you find the ad for when it spread to other theaters on the 15th of December of 1972, right on the page opposite are the ads for Pete and Tilly, Images, and The Poseidon Adventure. And there's nothing about any of those scores that is all like the other. Yes. They all come from completely different influences, completely different styles. You know, um, you wouldn't that's think that they're from the same guy, but that's um, that speaks to your earlier point about how he was already becoming very prominent. But look at the versatility he was capable of. He yes. had this huge musical and these three other movies with three totally different types of scores. He basically already arrived. The only thing that hadn't arrived was something like Jaws, where everybody would walk down the street humming it. Mm, if there was anything yeah. prior to that it would have been the songs from Fiddler because they were already everywhere by the time the movie opened everybody knew those songs if I were a rich man all day long if I were a wealthy man I wouldn't have to work hard if I were a bitty, bitty rich, idle, diddle, diddle, diddle man, I'd build a big tall house with rooms by the dozen, right in the middle of the town. A fine tin roof with a real wooden floors below. There would be one long staircase just going up and one even longer coming down and one more leading nowhere just for show. I'd fill my yard with the chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear. Squawking just as noisily as they can And each love Will land like a trumpet in the ear As if to say here lives a wealthy man If I were a rich man all day long I biddy biddy bum If I were a wealthy man I wouldn't have to work hard If I were a biddy biddy rich Idle-diddle-diddle man I think this speaks also about John's sense of adaptability and, and versatility. I mean, at that moment, he already showed a great deal of that by working in several different genres and also different kind of musical styles. I mean, just let's think about his incredible output for television, for example, uh, he did in the 60s. 
So in this case, he showed a great sensibility at having the responsibility of taking a beloved score written by someone else and being able to make it his own while respecting it at the same time. And I think this new release really makes that come forward stronger than ever. I mean, he wrote some incredible orchestration for this film, expanding the original Broadway score, which called, I think, for a small pit orchestra of 20, 25 musicians, up to an orchestra of 80 elements. I wanted to try to articulate that. Really, I wanted to try to articulate what the seven-year-old experienced. Not an easy thing, but the thing is, if you really look at the analysis of any Broadway show, really, you're, you're really just the laws of physics dictate that you have a pit orchestra. In its heyday, you might get up to 40. Nowadays, it's hard to afford even a dozen. If you say the chorus as an example, the chorus in the show are the people on the stage. They're seen. They're the villagers. The villagers are the choruses, maybe, you know, 16, 18 people in a circle. Now you have a film score, and the chorus is off screen. It's not people actually on the screen singing it. And it's a big chorus. It's the kind that we are used to hearing from a Star Wars movie or Harry Potter or, you know, any of the scores where John puts the chorus in. And it's, to me, it's now it's like all the villages. And you're looking at this broad landscape. So this is really the chorus of the whole entire community of villages in that pale of settlement in Russia. And we're hearing it, hearing that sound and the orchestra with it coming kind of across the plains and across the fields, as opposed to the Broadway show, which is what it is. It's a small story about little village and one family and a few people around it. The movie had the responsibility of using that as a sort of a case study of a larger piece of history. So I think what you're talking about all comes down to Norman Jewison and uh, what he brought to it. You know, that's sort of the key to why the movie is as successful as it was and as timeless as it is. And um, there'd been talk about a remake before COVID came, and so I don't, I don't know the status of it, but it almost feels like something that uh, you don't want to bother with a remake. It's just perfect the way it is. traditions. We've kept our balance for many, many years. You know, whenever whenever you were saying there uh, earlier on about the the sound of Williams was very much in Fiddler on the Roof and, and those idiosyncrasies and even, you know, from the opening tradition, you know, there's the orchestral colour, which he's so renowned for. It's just all over it, like, isn't it? You know, just the the um, even like for instance the the writing whenever the camera is you know going to the church this lovely kind of fruity rich brass sound uh, with organ as well you know that's so his trademark. <laughs>
are the others in our village. They make a much bigger circle. You know, I remember my father and I watched it uh, for the first time, like uh, it must have been the early 90s, uh, on TV, it was on BBC, uh, some Sunday afternoon. And totally, you know, blown away by it. And it, it was a big deal. Obviously, um, he knew who John Williams was a bit more than I did. But it was uh, exciting to experience uh, an early work and an unfamiliar work. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd never seen it or heard the score. And it blew me away. I mean, especially the likes of, you know, the first act finale, this incredibly dramatic and very powerful you know, a statement from the orchestra. It just, it, it, it was huge. And and that was, you know, the, the stamp of Williams, certainly that, that was, we, we know, an original score um, cue. But he, he, even just, you know, as I say, the likes of the, the colour and the orchestrations and the, and the scurrying strings, you know, during the opening and, and you know, the touches of, of Matchmaker, like the finale of Matchmaker is adorable. But al- also, I mean, also the way he kind of, uses scoring moments within the songs you know um, i'm reminded of, of you know mm-hmm. in the tradition uh sequence on uh, the opening uh, when there's the little kid running toward the school and you hear the there the that's strings right the scoring strings yeah 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 and and this is a beautiful scoring moment which is so typical of john who we where he likes to you know to to accompany with very active music what we are seeing on screen not just mickey mousing but adding something more you know yes in that third dimension that we often spoke about. At three I started Hebrew school, at ten I learned a trade. I hear they picked a bride for me, I hope she's pretty. Tradition is just almost like a um, almost like a master class right there, just mm. of um, cinematography, of editing, the sound design, um, you know, the music, and that what would have gone into the playback. You, you know, how do you you know create this sense of community? Still be true to the Broadway score, but um, you know, it get it builds up this energy and this investment in the community and the characters and establishes so much. And at the same time, Norman Jewison took this wonderfully whimsical thing where he rhythm, shows things rhythmically with the music, which is very funny. You know, the slicing of the fish and the thumping of the yeah. dough. And, dum, and, dum, I mean, it, yeah, and dum, it just, it's, so there's a little bit of a tongue in its cheek through it also, even though it's deadly serious. But they're just great uses of montage, this great idea, which was pretty new at the time, which I think by Mr. Chips made big strides in exploring, which is that the, the character singing didn't always have to be on screen singing. I mean, that comes up a lot more later with solo songs like Sunrise Sunset. 
But I mean, in Chips, that was keyed off of what else was happening in cinema in the 60s with The Graduate and A Man and a Woman and movies like that were very influential where the music and the songs became very popular, but they were kind of like off-screen people thinking rather than on-screen singing into the camera. So tradition kind of right out the gate starts with that and then has you know, the benefit of uh, having constructed the turn of the century shtetl in what's now Croatia, absolutely believable. I mean, it's it's almost like they went there to just to make a historical drama about this and then just added the Broadway score to it. And somehow it works. <laughs> very true. Um, yes, but very you true. had to do it with this sort of European-sounding orchestrations, um, very, very lush and rich and um, uh, having a strong strength to it. Yes, and also I w I should say maybe a little bit of also Broadway glitter in some few moments, uh, especially in the Matchmaker or uh, To Life. There, there there is something that sparks, you know, that that Broadway spark that I always love in the great Broadway musicals. That and and you, we can find it here too. Matchmaker, matchmaker, you know that I'm still very young. Please take your time. Up to this minute I misunderstood that I could get stuck for good. Diniento, see that he's gentle, remember you were also a bride. It's not that I'm sentimental, it's just that I'm One of the things that just came up to my mind uh, is also how much John Williams was a witness of the golden period of the Hollywood musicals too, back when he was working as a pianist and then also as an arranger uh, in the late 1950s. I mean, he seems to have absorbed that kind of really unique uh, vernacular of the great MGM orchestrators like Conrad Salinger or Skip Martin and all the great school of arrangers who work on the classical musicals of that era. I mean, Fiddler on the Roof, of course, isn't a Hollywood musical per se, but it seems that Williams brought some of that glitter, as I said before, into this project too. I think there's something about um, the sort of the history of bringing Broadway musicals to the screen, mm. especially when you had, um, once you're into the Rodgers and Hammerstein era, who basically brought Broadway itself to a new level. And then they themselves were very much involved in the technical advancements in cinema and, and were around for the development of Cinemascope and Tadeo and all of that. And some of their shows were some of the first to take advantage of that format to the point where they were producing a couple of them themselves. There seems to be this, you get a sense that there is an obligation to sort of get a pristine version of the Broadway show and present it on screen for the mass audience of people who will never get to New York. In the 50s and the 60s, 
it feels like that underlying obligation is there behind some of these movies. Then, of course, cinema changed through the 60s. And so we gradually shift over to a sort of a, just a different mode of thinking. And if you're then going to still do musicals, where it starts to see, you start to see more of a tendency of them sort of serving their own purpose, not necessarily being um, beholden to yes. presenting the, a Broadway show. Because if you did try to do that, that's usually when you didn't have any success, even though some of those films were very good. Because mm -hmm. as we know, the late 60s was, um, you know, Matt Kennedy wrote this book called um, Roadshow, right, about all the musical uh, flops of the late 60s. Again, some were very successful, like, say, Oliver and Funny Girl. But even when you look at those, you feel that the main agenda was to take the stage show and get it on the screen. Fiddler doesn't seem to have that. It feels like that's the source material, and now let's see how can we make it into a movie? How can we make it cinematic? And nobody agreed with that approach more than Joe Stein, who wrote the thing. You know, if something was right for the show, it was right for the show. If it was wrong for the movie, out it went. Sometimes it was simple things, like starting to life in Laser Wolf's house, rather than Tavia meets him at the tavern, which obviously for conventions of stage, that's what you're going to do. It's set there. Um, but you had an opportunity now to see Laser's house, have um, an intimate moment there, and then they pour a drink, walk out, and march through the streets, and then get to the tavern. So um, little things like that, um, yes. or uh, taking the the um, piece from the Broadway show called The Rumor out of the second act and dumping it entirely. These were yeah, showing the uh, Perchik demonstration in Kiev, which you couldn't do on Broadway on a, on a stage, you know. So these were things that Joe Stein actually brought to it, and just the I think this the way the natural way of thinking by the time we hit the early seventies was to just do what's right for the movie. And the Norman yeah. Norman brought that to it as well with the insistence on shooting. I mean, if it had been made in nineteen sixty one rather than nineteen seventy one, you know, everything would have been just sort of constructed in Culver City and. Um, MGM painted backdrops and that kind of thing, you know. I mean, you look at something, say, 1954, Brigadoon, it's a faithful translation of the Broadway show. But it's like, this is a movie that should have been shot in Scotland and, you know, done in a real way. Yeah. And it's done in a very old Hollywood, you know, back lot, everything in, shot in interiors kind of way. And Fiddler goes the opposite from that. Yeah. Probably, yeah. probably inspired by you know, the sound of music, which was sort of the big elephant in the living room that was such a huge success that everybody was trying to copy it. But they share a similarity in sort of shot where it took place um, and in this the over, overriding themes about um, accepting change coming into the world and ultimately having to leave your own country. So there's some kinship there, yeah. I think. But that's what I said. It's like Norman decided, let's just shoot this like it's just going to be the historical drama, you know, about the Jewish communities in the shtetl, about the pilgrims and how they left. Uh, let's just do the Sholem Aleichem stories, and then now we're going to add the Broadway score to it, but yes. adapt it, really adapt it as if it was written originally for the screen. And I just personally think that um, 
um, almost just as much as he did with Goodbye Mr. Chips, that John took those songs and really made them his own, where some things just sound like his own work. But that's yes. all in the, in the arrangements and the orchestrations and in the sensitivity, mm. the sense of timing and, uh, yeah. and, and the rhythms the that he brought to it. Sometimes a change in tempo. Sometimes on stage it was slower or faster. And different rhythm for Miracle of Miracles, you're going to run it a lot faster on film than with two characters basically standing on a stage. Now you have the characters running through a birch forest, so that's naturally going to want a more joyous tempo, more more uh, lush orchestrations, you know, than you than the simplicity of the stage version. <laughs> Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, God took a Daniel once again, stood by his side, and miracle of miracles, walked him through the lion's den. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, I was afraid that God would frown, but like he did so long ago in Jericho, God just made a wall fall down. When Moses softened Pharaoh's heart, that was a miracle. When God made the waters of the Red Sea part, that was a miracle too. But of all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all is that out of a worthless lump of clay, God has made a man today. That's a perfect example, isn't it? A miracle of miracles of, of that quintessential Williams sound. And I remember being so gutted whenever that version wasn't on the album. And, you know, <laughs> because I hadn't heard the album uh, until I saw the film, you know, saw the film, as I said, you know, whenever I was a lot younger. And then I, I couldn't wait to get the album. And it's one of those cases of, oh, for goodness sake, it's still fantastic. But, I mean, that's, that's a very different uh, opening and ending. And... In the research, you know, we all did for this project, I, I think it was fascinating to hear about Norman Jewison's uh, comments, you know, footnotes about the the actual, you know, the, the, the ending he wanted, that pickup recording for the ending, which is in the final film, uh, to, to cover his dodgy camera roll. But I actually love that. It, it's very kind of new age American 1970s cinema. I love that kind of, you know, I think it works, but obviously he was annoyed by it. But I mean, it's, it's almost uh, uh, kind of like a hippie, hippie moment, isn't it? Yeah. You know, with, with kids bit, running yeah. in the forest. I mean, it has that sort of, you know, kind of flower children who picks up flowers at one point, right? <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah. Lavender, right. lavender, yes. lavender grows tremendously in that region. So, um, yeah, so it's, it has that sense to it also um but yeah that swish pan up to the uh birch trees totally unmotivated other than it's just you know it's two people in love and let's pan up to the trees and i guess something about it he didn't like but yeah i do love the uh williams could go a little bit more with uh you know in 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 that insert that was done but uh yeah yeah the necessities the mother of invention as they say right so God has given you to me. As that wonderful, there's a there's a sample in that moment of it. You know, the um, the final beat of that is on the cut to. 
the massive wide shot of the wheat fields. Right? Yes. And we're, uh-huh. we're panning across it. And there's a moment where I just felt like the orchestra was coming literally across the fields. I remember just sitting in a theater. And, it's, and, it's, and it wasn't just a little child's imagination either because there's something about that. And we have to give the credit to Eric Tomlinson, of course, for the recording and to Gordon McCallum and that whole Pinewood team that did all yeah. these fantastic uh, groundbreaking sound mixes that even to this day when I see it in a the theater that effect comes back that sense of really being surrounded and enveloped by the music in a way that uh, you know playing the Blu-ray at home even with surround doesn't give me there's just something about this particular soundtrack seen mm-hmm. in a theater when the six channels are playing and it's been um, sound wise it's the repurposing to 5.1, I think, is fantastic. When I last saw it in the theater, it's a few years ago now, but when I last saw it, it came across because I actually could be aware of wherever the person was on the screen, their voice was targeted, pinpointed right to that position. That was a Gordon McCallum trademark, really. He perfected that back in the days when you had the five channels across the front. Mm-hmm. So, But I was su- surprised... Um, that in the repurposed sound, that actually worked. That's just something that's meant for a movie theater where the, your speakers are all, in fact, just right behind the screen, and you can and, and you can do that. Not so much now where we keep everything locked to the center, but then the orchestra sense of surrounding you. I remember getting it very powerfully during the wedding celebration and the bo- the bottle dance. Mm, just yes. that you know, just this moment where I'm sitting in the theater and it's like I don't want to be anywhere else because I'm surrounded by this incredibly lush and familiar sound of of John and his orchestra in London playing. It's one of my favorite moments too. Actually, uh, I do. I distinctly remember because I I too, like Tim, came to know this work very late in my John Williams <laughs> experience as a listener. I think it was the early 90s, mid-90s maybe, perhaps. Uh, and that cut on the soundtrack album was probably my favorite because, of course, it was mostly <laughs> instrumental and I was still very accustomed to, to musicals as I would become later on. But but that was fantastic because of, of the thing that you said and also the soundtrack album, the way uh, it was mixed and constructed by using also the sound, the actual production sound uh, some in some of the in some of the songs was like feeling there really for me too uh, especially when, when when the rhythm picks up toward the end and it's just I mean an amazing moment for me
getting back, uh, you know, to just to touch a little bit on the technical today, you know, that I always try to figure out the emotions of when I'm working on a film score of what I want to feel. The technical follows that. With a musical, it's a little different because there's inherently just some more emotional content to it because someone, there's lyrics, you know. On these orchestral tracks, I mean, so I asked myself the question, what do you want to feel? When it came to mm -hmm. the wedding celebration and bottle dance, my answer was, I want this to make me instantly want to go out and find a Jewish wedding, <laughs> you know, and start dancing. It's like I wanted it to get to that level of joy and, um, and exuberance or to make you just want to play the track over again because it goes a lot of ways. It starts very big, then it gets rather intimate. There's this great moment where John introduces the Anatevka melody for this wonderful little moment where the three oldest daughters are there on screen. Um, and there's that huge clarinet solo, I mean. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that, that, that comes in, yeah, which is, yeah, as everybody quiets down for the bottle dance, yeah. which then yeah, builds yes. into this reverie, you know, it, you know and, and I th thought, well, I'm going to do what I can to make this really feel like you just want to, you know, you, you, you just want to have a wedding, you know. <laughs> Thinking also about the, the Jewishness of the music, of course, and and its connection also to what really what is the music of America as well, because I think that we find so many uh, connections between the folk, the original Jewish folklore, to what became maybe music of the various country regions which, which have been influenced by the same kind of musical lore. And of course, we know when we speak about American composers, you know, we have to mention Aaron Copland and, and Leonard Bernstein, who had very strong Jewish roots that also came up in their own music. Even when Copland was writing perfectly Americana music, we can find some of the Jewishness 
even in some of the Appalachian Spring. And this kind of connects also with John, which and he, I think he also said in one of the quotes that you put into the liner notes that he was very aware of that because also his teachers when he was younger were all Jewish. So he has a, already a strong connection to Jewish music. And I mean, and really anybody in New York um, <laughs> will have that, as I said, because I had it because I mean, it's just part of the culture and things blend very much there, at least at the time that I was growing up. Um, but I'm trying to find here this famous antidote that you might know and I might um, make me not have to search it, but um, Cole Porter, who had told, I'm trying to remember who he told, he said the key to writing successful songs is to make them Jewish. <laughs> Could it be to Gershwin, maybe? <laughs> I think it was to Gershwin, yeah. It was to Gershwin. It was, yes, who was also sense. a Jewish. <laughs> right, so, Jewish so they basically all were, you know. Um, and it had to do with just the melody hitting a certain type of mode and, um, you know, a certain kind of note in the scale. Yeah. Um, and then if you really, I think it was from this documentary that was on, you know, public television. That, that, that's where I saw this, um, somebody talking about this, um, this quote or this anecdote about Cole Porter. Um, yeah, so there's a com there is a definitely a commonality to those musical traditions, for lack of a better word. Um, but there's, of course, there's a certain application of them that establishes a certain background, a certain culture, a certain history. The score doesn't really vary from that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that when it does, um, in the song that was not used in the film, Now I Have Everything, it wouldn't work. And so they cut it. They and cut it. Um, mm -hmm. Because it would work on Broadway. There's a sense on sitting in a theater to watch a stage show, and particularly this one, that you know, you're consciously aware that you're a modern audience. These are modern actors and we're telling this story set a hundred something years ago. In the cinema, when you've especially taken the trouble of actually going over to Europe and shooting and constructing authentic, you know, with authenticity, you want to actually feel like you are, in fact, seeing that. You're not seeing somebody play this. You're actually seeing 1905. And so, right, so then that, that, that's when you have to kind of get rid of things. And they, of course, um, tossed out that song and Norman asked for a replacement song that was more about Perchick's life as a revolutionary. Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnack, who had already moved on and weren't really working together again, kind of came back, or they were just finishing up, I think, their last show. Um, and they did Any Day Now, which was then um, recorded as a demo and then as a pre-recording, and they were all set to shoot it. And right at the point where it was going to come on location, Norman at that, just right on the spur, just decided we're not going to shoot it. Wasn't needed. Um, realizing that we'd have three sort of songs in a row that were all about that relationship and, um, and, and just let it go. That plus probably the, uh, the time, because they had such weather problems when they were over there, um, that, that, that that went out. But it's, a, but it's actually a very good song, but it has that modality to it that fits better, I think, with the rest of the score. That yeah. sort of minor key, which um, Jerry Bach really embraced and really liked so much. Um, that combination of the cultural tradition of the music merged with the Tin Pan Alley origins of Broadway music. Um, yes. Kind of 
just you know they really it's just maybe it's perfect expression as fiddler yes the river will rise and the dam will burst any day now any day and the first will be last and the last be first any day now any day when a million hands will be untied a million doors and windows will be open and the chains will be snapped and the whips be burned and the swords be turned into plowshares any day now any himself called Jerry Box's uh, score, you know, a, a masterpiece. And whenever, you know, you think of the structure, um, you know, the, the, the opening of Act Two, and you have similar, I suppose, a parallel maybe to, to West Side Story with I Feel Pretty, with Act Two of uh, Fiddler on the Roof, there's this, um, you know, wonderful reprise of tradition. And it's it's bringing the audience back and it's it's making them feel oh you know after that kind of downer of uh, end of act one which is in a very dramatic and very um awful scene it's it's bringing back the positivity and the, the showmanship there is so unparalleled isn't it because you, you're never quite sure when it's going to finish you know da, 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 and then suddenly <laughs> there's one more da, 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 da. Uh, that's just again I keep saying it but that's Williams all over isn't it he always knows what to say incredible musicianship and 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 drama at the end of the day it's uh, the exhibit A of being a dramatist and that's and we talked about the colour as well of his orchestrations again whenever we were researching this you know we we found that there was a saxophone you never really hear a saxophone in the score but it's a great such a clever colour device for orchestration, just, you know, with the trombones, with the trumpets, just giving a wee bit of, uh, you know, extra depth. Such cleverness. Well, going back to that uh, transition there from Act 1 to Act 2, um, of course, we're at the tail end of this period where you're at, the films actually had intermissions. Um, and so you would be going out to um, have your smoke or, um, you know, uh, get another drink or popcorn or something with this in your mind with this you know dreadful moment and then you do come back and what I feel you have it's not so much about the 
fact that it's a reprise of tradition, but I love that you come back to sort of life is just going on anyway. We had that mishap, but life does go on. And even though that's talking about a major historical event, um, it's relatable. We all have these tragic moments in our lives, but then, you know, that's in the late summer, and then we come back from intermission and it's harvest time. Life does go on. It has to go on. And so, you know, the movie, you know, gives you that feeding off, um, you know, Box and Harnick's um, approach in the, at the outset, because everybody in the show, everybody involved in the show, Harold Prince, Jerry Robbins, Bach, Harnack, Joe Stein, all of them had, um, were Jewish and had Jewish backgrounds, many of them from Europe and that region, Zero Mostel as well. You know, but Bach and Harnack were not focused on that. They were focused on the universality of it. Yes. And, and the things that were, you know, relatable to any culture. So that coming back into um, Act Two is a perfect example of that, you know, there's been a tragedy in our lives, a difficult moment, but we got past it and we're moving on. And we hope that life will just sort of resume its, its normalcy, you know, but then, of course, other things will happen. And then um, the story ends with um, having to make a big, drastic life change, which I think in itself is also relatable. Again, it's not to belittle the real history that's being shown, but there's a universal element there where they wanted it really to anybody who's ever had to deal with leaving a home or losing a person or a family splitting and that's basically all of us it's some in some way or other you know, could yeah. relate and joe stein liked to tell the story about the producer of the first production in japan saying tell me do do they understand this musical in america <laughs> because it's so Japanese, they really relate it over there to the tradition yeah. of it, and um, and you see just these productions all around the world. And um, Sheldon said, uh, you know, it's a musical that's about a Jewish village, but everybody who sees it thinks it's about them. Yes, it is totally. Yeah, and I think the music is really the, that unifying language among different and unique cultural. Uh, roots and traditions. I mean, that's why this movie and this music still, uh, especially in the way John Williams arranged it and, and orchestrated it, still speaks to, to us on, on, on a, even on a personal level. It's not just about a, a Jewish story or a, a village in the early 20th century about uh, people living in countryside and so on. It, it's something that really relates to anyone in any part of the world, in any place of the history as well and that's why also the connection of the folklore in musical terms uh, you see how they are related to many different cultures you know it was Leonard Bernstein who spoke about you know the commonality between the various music on the various country we can find the same modalities in music from the high Scotland <laughs> of the highlands and music from the from 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 Israel or the Jewish world uh, back to traditional music in maybe South America and they all have something in common and that's what is beautiful and that's what makes Fiddler on the Roof still relevant today at least I guess in my opinion. And most of the songs are really about um, people falling in love right or getting together uh, if the, even if you're just talking about it. Sure. 
quite a lot of them are, and um, sort of sort of matchmaker. It, it's it's timeless. I mean, people are going to dream about who they're going to marry. Sunrise, sunset. It's parents reflecting on what advice could they give their children who are coming of age. I mean, these are just timeless things that have nothing whatsoever to do with that um, particular culture, and it's just it's beautiful in that regard. And and I think it's very important, especially in this day and age, where we are also very keen to differentiate ourselves in terms of cultural identities, and, and rightfully so in, in most of the cases, of course. But I think that we also should find the things that makes us, you know, common to each other, to find something that really r- relates to each other. We can be proud of our identity, of our cultural heritage, and, and display with, with, with pride our diversity, but at the same time there are so many things that really binds us together. I, I hope this doesn't sound corny, but it's really something that uh, a piece like Fiddler Around the Roof really speaks about, in my opinion. Well, I think especially over the last couple of years when we've had such physical separation yeah, um, and hiding behind masks and, and that kind of thing, you know, um, it, we're more sensitive to the need for that. And it's ironically created situations where families are closer together. And kids were home from school, people home from work, and terrible economic repercussions of it. But there was an opportunity there where people discovered that you actually have an hour to spend with somebody rather than alone in a car on the freeway. You look at something like Sabbath prayer. My first version of the liner notes for the essay, which was a lot longer, and uh, which would have been a book, but um, Dennis Cordell, who was very instrumental in helping me through this process, thought it was the best thing I'd written and didn't want to cut a word out of it, um, but it had to be. And even so, uh, we ended up with a very thick booklet and La La Land being very gracious about sort of putting two booklets in there. Uh, but in my first version, I talked about Sabbath prayer and I used the two biggest cities in the United States, New York and Los Angeles, and talked about what a typical... Friday night would be either here in um, uh, the Fairfax district trying to get to the 405 freeway or in lower Manhattan trying to get to the Williamsburg Bridge. Crowds of people just sitting in cars trying to get where they're going and maybe getting there by 7, 38 o'clock. Contrasted with this idea of Friday night, the sun is going down and the whole family gathers. And, you know, what a dream to act, if we could actually have that, you know, and a um, hundred and some odd years ago, we did. That's what this culture did. But I don't think that was even restricted to the Jews observe the Sabbath. But I think generally speaking, in that agrarian society, the end of the week came and then there was family time. You know, instead, uh, you know, we're all from, you know, sitting in our little metal boxes, you know, <laughs> sitting in traffic and... Uh, <laughs> You know, so there's a, there's a, there's a, there again, it's like, um, the text is very Jewish, but behind it is this universal idea of, um, you know, just gathering together and having a moment of peace, of just being at home and and together. And that's a very beautiful sequence to me. May God bless you and grant you Sabbath prayer for you. 
May God make you good mothers and wives. May he send husbands who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May the Lord protect and defend you. Also, I think in speaking about uh, John's filmography, it, it really it's a kind of a, of a foreshadowing of the beginning of Schindler's List. If you can think about the, it's very the, funny you mentioned Schindler's List, but um, the English horn that starts Sabbath prayer is almost exactly the same as the one that starts the cue in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Marion has the medallion. When I first heard Raiders, I thought, oh, is this going to be Sabbath prayer? exact same uh, first two notes of English horn. Um, so it's like that just led me to feel that, you know, Fiddler on the Roof was a John Williams score. But certainly parts of um, Anatevka, you hear this um, rhythm going that absolutely is a precursor to the Schindler's The Workforce. Yes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right, you can almost edit them together, really. A little bit of this... A little bit of that. A pot. A pan. A broom. A hat. Someone should have set a match to this place years ago. A bench. A tree. What's a house? Or a stove. People who pass through an Atafka don't even know they've been there. A stick of wood. A piece of cloth. What do we need? Nothing much. Only a matevka. A matevka, a matevka, underfed, overworked. A matevka, where else will the Sabbath be so sweet?
Schindler's List, I think I said this, is very much a successor musically as well as just historically to um, Fiddler. It's not a Spielberg film, but you can all, almost watch it as, yes. a, as a prequel to Schindler's List and, and then Munich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also it started the John Williams' uh, love affair with the violin, which you very well uh, explored in the booklet. I mean, it really ignited his true love for for the violin and for violin writing that still goes on up to this day. I mean, <laughs> he, he still keeps churning out violin pieces for be it at the concerto for Anna Sophie Mutter or some new arrangement of film themes. I mean, what is it that makes the violin so special for John? It's it's really something very it's very sweet for me that he has this, and it, it seems to also to understand very well how to explore the different characters of the instrument, especially for a non-violinist. <laughs> it's quite quite an achievement. Well, you just gave me a lot there, but first of all, that's a lot of it. It's thanks to you for piecing all that in, information together for this project because I had oh, sensed that while working on my it. Pleasure. I said, you know, I thought he's come back to this several times. And um, I said, I don't know if we've really sort of codified it, really come up with the through line. And when we did... It was remarkable how he worked with almost every top well-known violinist that there was and really never let it go. And he gets almost giddy now. He's genuinely, despite um, how accomplished he is, he is in awe of this item. And um, just looking at it physically, he recently had uh, an interview bite come out, right, where he just kind of almost is at a loss for words to just being giddy over the thing physically of this wood and how did you come up with that shape and how did you know about those strings and how did you, you know, you know, he's just in awe that this thing is, could be so old and cannot be improved upon. It can't be. And it's the cornerstone of the orchestra. So, I mean, it's just to this day when you see, he called the symphony orchestra one of sort of the greatest human inventions. When the concert master or mistress or leader, as they call it in the UK, comes out and tunes the orchestra, it's like, you know, this is like, this is like the anchor, right? Okay. Yeah. You know, it's going to start. It's like it's nothing without that first chair and that particular instrument. It, even though he's Joshua Bell and, and, and Gil Shaman and, you know, all these, and uh, Isaac Stern, Isaac Perlman, he's done all these fantastic project, projects with these great um, virtuosos. And I love them all, but I have to say that Anna Sophie, I couldn't come up with the way to say it till just the other day when someone asked me. And I said, this is the reason why, oh, because somebody had seen the second violin concerto premiere. I think it was Dennis, actually. It was Dennis Cordell we were talking about. He'd finally seen it on television there in New York. I said, the, the reason why I liked watching this more than just listening to it is, is first of all, you see John's, how John, how into it he is. But I said, here's the thing about Anna Sophie. I feel like the instrument is playing her. Mm. I feel like she's giving herself over to it rather than telling it what to do. It's telling her what to do. And I never really kind of got that from observing the other violinists where I could see technique going on. You know, it, it felt like, you know, she's responding to it. Uh, it's just an astound. I could see why you know um, he wants to keep working with her, because there's this. She has a genuine love of his music and of his film music in particular, which is just such a leap for anybody from the classical world 
to dare to come out and say, you know, yeah. I love I love film music. You know, not too many years ago, it was just, you know, completely just poo-pooed, as we say. You know? But uh, yeah. for her to say that, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a great, true collaboration there with this work. And I love the fact that it goes all the way back to the fact that she was Mrs. Andre Previn. So this really goes back covering there is a tie. Yes. Yes, the there is. You know, start of his career. think that she has probably some kind of, of I don't know maybe an inspiration to convince John to finally come to Europe and, and do some concerts here in Europe and I really hope that when he, John will come to Milan next year for the June concert at La Scala Theatre he will visit Cremona which is very near to Milan to visit the great the, the city of the Luthiers who made the great Stradivari violins and I really hope that he will make a visit a stop over in Cremona because it would be something very profound to see, you know. Why I, for some reason, get the feeling she's already told him that, and if she comes, she'll drag him there, you know. But uh... <laughs> absolutely, I'm sure. The, yeah. uh, a lot of a lot of people would say that the violin is closer to the human voice. Uh, you know, that's what a lot of musicians would say, isn't it? And it has that kind of audacity. But um, you know, whenever some of the um, stories. The musicians were recounting about uh, Isaac Stern um, at the sessions in London. It was it was quite actually quite amusing because uh, essentially in some of the cues uh, Stern had to play badly, and uh, some of the orchestra were really baffled as to uh, you know because they didn't they didn't really see any any you know uh, footage on, on the screen. They went, Why is he playing so badly? You know, uh, so obviously now that there's perspective and uh, and and we now we know the actual construct. This is why, but um, inc incredible, and and some of the the again the the literature we read about this. There, there's Thomas Z. Shepard who went on to be a real big Sony Music henchman, mm -hmm. and obviously he produced a lot of the the Boston Bops albums, as we all know. The letter to Thomas Z. Shepard from John Williams, you know, praising Stern and, and praising, I think, Shepard's. Um, facilitation basically because at, at that time Shepard was kind of handling Stern wasn't he yes you, yeah, you, he was... you quote it you quote it in the liner notes yeah he was his record producer I think right at the time yeah that's, that would sound right yes yes because Saul Hurek was his agent still mm -hmm. and Tom Shepard was the his record producer yes and uh, yeah and he made the arrangements uh, for Isaac uh, to uh, to work all that out and uh, do the two days in 1970, then two days in 1971. Sometimes with the orchestra, sometimes um, solos that were dubbed in later. But uh, yeah, but that, what a fine line to walk to sort of have to come across believable as sort of the town fiddler, right? 
but also <laughs> your Isaac Stern. So it's you know, people want Isaac Stern. Uh, well, he but, he put him at a great display in the opening title, of course, as we the, the story that John told several times about you know writing an actual violin cadenza mm-hmm. to, to cover the length of the of the main titles, which weren't, of course, in the original show. And that was probably the biggest display of original writing that he had to do for the movie. And I love that. I mean, um, the uh, it, it's sort of like um, you know, if you could just if all of the obstacles in life could be removed, you know, um, then this is what's possible. This kind of expression and this kind of virtuosity is is actually possible, you know. But uh, because we have politics and economics and all these things that get in the way. Um, we have conflict. Thank you. 
bringing this back to another musical moment in the film, which is um, To Life. We touched on it earlier. But, you know, you have in one corner of this tavern the Russians, and um, they l literally kind of take over this uh, group of Jews celebrating. But then it blends together. This is just a classic Jerome Robbins sequence, I think, kind of keying off what he did with the gymnasium in West Side Story. Yes, um, very much. Where the cultures blend, and if we could simply get past our differences, look what's possible. You know, and it's just a room full of people just celebrating this simple news that, hey, a wedding's been announced. And, and, and hey, if we could just throw all of our differences aside, you know, look where we could get. You know, look how joy, joyful life could be. That's a tr tremendously profound moment in the film for me. And also the blending of, of the musical styles. I mean, you can see how much Russian music, Russian traditional music is tied to, to Jewish music. And it's probably my favorite moment in the movie. And of course, it's a huge display of, of great, great musical filmmaking. And that is always such a joy to, to watch and to hear. Have there the um, Balalaika band that they went down to, right, and got from Pushkin House, right? Um, <laughs> and they recruited and brought them to Anvil and um, and had them all um, sit there for, with the orchestra and playing. I mean, just to, you know. Um, yeah, the band that Jump put together, I mean, the, the roster of musicians, that all the information that team retrieved from, from the orchestra players. I mean, we have some of the top London players <laughs> of the that era. That was remarkable, wasn't it? Yeah. Thanks to you, Tim, for going to Musicians uh, <laughs> Union there. And, well, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was like a real labor of love, uh, as I think it was for, for all of us involved in this. I mean, incredible to, to get so much of this information because, you know, not to take the focus too much away, <laughs> you know, but I, I think what, what's, what's so key is it's the, it's actually the first time, and it's great that La La Land, uh, other kind of uh, producers, 
of this because it's the first time we've actually managed to collate all the information for a National Philharmonic Orchestra um, session recording. You know, we, we know that the orchestra w was used so much during, um, you know, the, the glory days of, of London recording. You know, it was fixed by Sid Sachs. It isn't, fair enough, it isn't credited as a National Philharmonic Orchestra, but essentially, you know, it is that because Sid fixed it and, you know, we, we have principles from all of the main London orchestras, which, you know, we know that John Williams loves. And, I mean, it, it would have been a complete... Uh, absolute treat for him to have all these incredible iconic musicians you know whenever everyone reads the um the the inlay or, or to see all the musicians listed obviously bear in mind this is as well you know s separate batches of sessions over the two years so there aren't like 18 french horns you know <laughs> there's you know certainly all, all of the key, the key players and you know some of the Patrick Halling sadly passed away um, earlier this year, um, just due, due to due old age. Uh, he was the orchestra leader, but and then when you have the likes of uh, you know John McCarthy, who who we all know is uh, one of the key figures when it comes to, to voices and and, and the choir, yeah, exactly. And and one of the key things John Williams loved about working in London, as we all know, is the fact, especially with chorus is that they articulated better than the American, you know, choirs. And, you know, he, he means no disrespect by that. He's just being totally honest. The articulation and, and the, obviously, the consonants and everything is just a bit more... Um, crisp. Precise. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Yes, crisp. That's it. And I think it was just a, 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 real, a real joy. And we have to thank Paul Sachs, Sid Sachs's uh, son, who was very instrumental in helping this... Um, to, to get the information because the Musicians Union in London who released all the paperwork couldn't really uh, do it easily without uh, Paul telling me that all of his father's documentation was sent to them. A lot of it still needs to be digitised as, uh, you know, we, we, we know that some of the actual rough paperwork was <laughs> hard to uh, decipher. It was quite a, a great kind of investigative journey, but it, it, it was a joy to, to piece everything together and just see all these musicians in black and white and to, to try and get a, a feel for, you know, where where what was done, like, you know, the, the, the organ being recorded separately on a, on a different day, but it was on a sheet which related to a an orchestra day so right to, we, we knew what know, church it these was these little things <laughs> yes um, exactly i remember so. finding that information on goodbye mr chips also but yeah i'm just so amazed by the research level on this because we had things like um the daughter of alexander courage whom we'll talk about in another episode had photos that sandy shot of the sessions including like Ken Cameron, you know, in his kilt, you know, yes. which Sandy would have gotten a big <laughs> kick out of, you know, uh, you know, big, uh, you know, really wrote the book uh, for the BBC and then was started Anvil, right? Um, you know, but it's like, the, she's like, I have these photos, I have no idea who they are. Then we scan them, send them over to you. You're able to spread them around and boom, we have, we know who people are. So suddenly wow. you have two you know, meaningless uh, pieces of history. Once you bring them together, now history comes alive. And it was yeah. very challenging right now with some libraries still closed, um, particularly the Academy. Um, I wish that I could get into the Walter Mirisch papers, but those are actually 
closed until Walter is no longer with us, and he just turned 100. Hmm. Um, So that left us with um, the Norman Jewison papers, and Saul Pincus in Toronto went to the University of Toronto and and saw those papers. And then I reached out to uh, University of Madison, Wisconsin, where the rest of them were. And there were things in the Sandy Courage collection in Rochester, New York. Nothing was in L.A., really. Um, It became sort of an international effort. But it it worked. And what was great is that once you had, it was just unearthing, literally unearthing puzzle pieces. Yes. And then they fit together. And suddenly we had a picture. And as you know, even when you have a movie that gets a lot of coverage and writing behind the scenes about the making of it, Usually the recording of the music gets really bypassed if it's mentioned at all, right? And if they're doing a making of book, usually that's ready to be published before the scoring happens. Yes. So um, this kind of thing to go in, to actually piece together the dates and the who's who and the where's where, you know, um, by going to people and finding documentation and recording schedules, things like that. Yeah. Actually piecing the puzzle together and then carrying it through with uh, your help, Maurizio, and really pinning down the concert at a, the concert piece that, that John still does. Actually, the begin, beginnings of that, where it was done, who played it, when it was done with the Boston Pops, when it was recorded, you know, um, who's, who, uh, who of prominence has played it since then. Um, to get that through line all the way through to today that really illustrates the importance of this project to John personally and this, to his career. Yeah, it is. And, and is he aware of this new release? I mean, uh, did oh, he Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Well, here, this was actually like a perfect storm because he listened to the music while he was at Tanglewood getting ready for the premiere of the Violin Concerto. Wow. <laughs> so, um, perfect timing. He, so I got notes from him then, and disc two, he loved. It's very, very different because we had a lot of things that are slightly different more Isaac Stern lines that he'd written, things like that. Maybe we'll go more into this on a subsequent chat. But then I wish to God somebody had taken a picture of this and nobody had. But he reviewed the artwork in the concert hall in Berlin on an iPad. (laughs) I think sitting in the the front row of the house, I think. And And Richard was just next door. No, we should have asked Sarah Willis. We should have asked Sarah Willis. (laughs) She was around, John. Yeah. But but he but he loved that, especially since, you know, you know, in conjunction with the research that we were able to uncover, we had all these photos. Uh, to be in touch with the unit stills photographer who confirmed that the photos of John and Isaac and Norman and Isaac at the sessions were taken by him. David James, who was also James, still yeah. photographer in Schindler's List, another mm-hmm. <laughs> really good connection. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, good point. There's Thank Branko Lustig, who was the location manager on Fiddler, ended up producing Schindler with Steven Spielberg in Poland, right? So We need an Oscar also. Um, yes. Can we also point out that the Fiddler is the imam from Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, didn't I? I actually. didn't no, catch no, it. No, no, <laughs> completely escaped. Oh, Tootie Lemko was a choreographer and a mime artist. And uh, I think he did the choreography on the film version of Leslie Brickus's Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. I think he did that. Or it was a dance, something, a dance, something or other on it. Um, and then, uh, you know, played the fiddler because, you know, he had to stand on a rooftop for, you know, six minutes 
with the sun rising behind him, silhouetted, matching in the ear, earpiece, you know, the pre-recording by Isaac, which then still didn't quite work. And so Isaac, so John rewrote it to match the film. And that's why we have two versions of that. Uh, so yeah, so, uh, you know, in costume with an earpiece playing, you know, on a rooftop. So, but uh, yeah, so you needed somebody who uh, had that kind of balance and ability. But that, uh, yeah, so London-based guy. So, um, and he showed up, I think, in a James Bond movie as like a bad guy. <laughs> and, you know, so I mean, uh, yeah. So, oh, but yes, yeah, he, yes, he has right. the, uh, the medallion and right. translates medallion in Raiders. As a but, uh, nice connection. It, it, it's quite fitting as well, wasn't it? The the, the concert premiere that, that you know we found out, uh, as Mike was saying uh, f- from your research, Maurizio, that the concert premiere of Fiddle on the Roof was actually in London at uh, Sidney Samuelson's uh, legendary film harmonic concerts. Nineteen seventy six. Yes. Yeah, and and we had a lovely, you know, we we spoke with Sidney, and and he was very, you know, so gushing about the whole experience because he really persuaded. John Williams to you know to to perform it, and he was a massive fan of of the score, and and uh, that that was a you know a, a big deal, and it's uh, it's just just tremendous piecing all these things together, and 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 having I suppose at the end of the day because we know it was such a key part of of Williams' life, London at at that, at that period, and even so much you know to, to actually seeing where he used to live on all these letters it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's kind of cool you know obviously he doesn't live there anymore but yeah, it's just i, uh, I it's, think i got by mr chips i think i actually saw like his electric bill or something so. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear me we're, we're bordering on anoraks here but it's fascinating i know but i mean that the amazing thing to me is that to use the cliche from the x-files the truth is out there yeah. All these things that we actually thought we never would know, it's just a matter of doing the work yes. and finding the right people and digging into yep. the right archives, and then suddenly the history comes alive again. So it's yeah. tremendously satisfying to me, not only that to have finally had the opportunity to work with the music recordings and get them to sound the way that I felt that they should and deserve to, but to have in conjunction with that really all the history of how it came together recognizing this you know great importance to the career of john williams and to him personally I, I oh absolutely the, yeah. the the anniversaries too yeah i mean it's it's all it's really it's, it's like 50 50 90 is the the coin of phrase that mike uh, came up with there it? and it's true like 50 90 um and i think it's also definitely worth sta- celebrating jim titus once again nailing the the artwork again Wonderful. i suppose we could talk about it uh, in, in a future one but uh, you know i loved even just the you know the onset footage of the the matchmaker you know it's lovely. Yeah, and also you finding so many dancing so and, many well, lovely pictures and everything is feels so part of the, of the of that world. I mean, it's it's absolutely a stellar piece, and I hope fans will will enjoy this. So especially fans who probably were never accustomed to to this work, probably because for many years it wasn't an, an easy to find. You know, it was kind of a collector's item for many years. Then there was an edition that was done for the 30th, 30th anniversary, now 20 years ago already. Uh, but it kind of went lost to to, uh, to itself. And then finally we have something very, I think, definitive, we could say, to, for, for this work to, to enjoy and to be able to, you know, to, to look to this side of John Williams' career and, and deserves the attention of... of every true John Williams admirer, in my opinion. Yeah, mine as well. 
Yeah, me, me too. And, and I think it's really worth pointing out that, you know, I mean, the, the previous editions, uh, I mean, pale in comparison to, to a massive extent, you know, without meaning to get sound at all, um, kind of petty, you know, but I mean, some of the, for instance, some of the uh, narrative and text on the, you know, the, the anniversary edition before this ultimate edition was, was so misleading. Uh, <laughs> I mean, speaking personally, <laughs> well, we, like you know, it's said London Symphony. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's it's crazy. When something is called ultimate, we know that it's usually <laughs> the other way around. Yeah, I, I found that the the two words that are the kisses of death are final and complete, but uh, but <laughs> u- ultimate is uh, is right up there, you know, um, because yeah. as Mr. Chip said, uh, you can't qualify a superlative. <laughs> you completed the circle very well there but, uh, yeah but i look yeah, forward actually i i look yeah. uh i'm more than happy to get slightly petty next time when we discuss the te- technical side of the release about the yeah. yeah 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 absolutely I, yeah. we we will sit down again very soon to just talk more about this 50th anniversary of fiddler on the roof so Mike, thank you very much for your time with us. Thank you. And thank you guys for a really wonderful chat. I enjoyed it immensely. No, beautiful. Absolutely. Same thank you. you. Okay. Take care, you guys. Fiddler on the Roof 50th Anniversary Remastered Edition is now available on lalalandrecords.com. And stay tuned for more talk with Mike Matesino on Fiddler on the Roof coming soon on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. (laughs) 